This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Saturday. Can you believe what's the day? We got the 12th. So not next weekend, but the weekend after. Not this Saturday, but the next Saturday, Christmas will be over. Goodness gracious. Um, thank you so much for being here. Got a lot to do today. Do a little uh, recap here on, on Donald Trump's proposal the other day. Um, it's not unconstitutional. Uh, we, we, we we talked a lot about it. Um, the New York Times had a, has an editorial this morning saying that his proposal to ban all Muslims com- from coming to America for a while uh, until we can get our act together. Uh, the New York Times says it's an awful idea, but it's constitutional, which is a fine opinion to have if you think it's a terrible idea. Uh, but stop throwing around it's unconstitutional. It's not unconstitutional. The Constitution does not apply to citizens of Pakistan. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's absurd. Actually, I put something on Facebook. Someone had a good response. There's so many comments. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. Um, and I, I made that argument. I said, there's no way that a citizen in Pakistan has our constitutional right to freedom of speech or whatever. Um, oh, here, Mike says, on the other hand, our citizens of the U.S., Subject to the laws of Pakistan. <laughs> of course, no is the answer. <clears throat> Craziness. Again, maybe a bad idea. But just because something's a bad idea doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. And since when has the left been so concerned about the Constitution? We'll talk about that a little later as well. A uh, little side note here. I just think it's important to, to throw out there. Currently, there are almost a thousand Active probes into ISIS supporters. This is according to the FBI. A thousand active probes. 48 suspects are under um, 24-7 surveillance. So the senator who's on the select committee of intelligence says that those 48 people are a, quote, big resource drain, almost overwhelming. You can imagine that would be true. Now in France, just a couple weeks ago, the head of their version of the FBI, said the services are overwhelmed. So we have our, at least intelligence, uh, senator in the select committee on intelligence says we're almost overwhelmed. In France, they say they are overwhelmed. So why would we have any policy that would make our FBI more overwhelmed? And the Hill, a couple days ago, uh, the magazine online uh, a congressman revealed a portion of a classified letter from the National Counterterrorism Center, which says that they have, um, let's see, let me quote here. Uh, we have identified individuals with ties to terrorist groups in Syria attempting to gain entry to the United States through the U.S. refugee program. 
So this is the National Counterterrorism Center. The refugee system, like all immigration programs, is vulnerable to exploitation from extremist groups seeking to send operatives to the West. I, I get frustrated when you are portrayed as a hate monger, as a bigot, as a fear monger. When at the same time, we have the head of the CIA, the FBI, Homeland Security, uh, senators on the intelligence committees, uh, the Center for uh, the National Center for Terrorism, like all the, all these groups saying exactly what you've been saying, what you've been concerned about, these basic concerns. Yet you are portrayed as a bigot and a fearmonger. That frustrates me. Now we have that, we have the terrorists themselves, but really I don't even want to focus too much on them. I'm talking more about the 71% of Muslims in Pakistan who were asked their thoughts on ISIS and they weren't quite sure, couldn't come to terms with saying they don't support them. I think a high percentage, like 60% of them were, they don't know, they don't know their thoughts on ISIS and then 11%, something like that, uh, are our supporters of ISIS. Yeah, so, so 71% of Muslims in Pakistan are like, man, I don't really know about ISIS, but I do know my thoughts on Sharia law, and if my daughter doesn't want to be a Muslim anymore, then I should be allowed to kill her. So I'm a little more concerned with those people, even more so than just the straight-up terrorists putting on a suicide bomb, which is what I want to talk about a little later as well. Walter Russell Mead, he says, a cosmopolitan and tolerant society, which is what we are, cannot thrive. If it admits millions of migrants who hate and despise cosmopolitan values. And you are not a hate monger for thinking that. Last week we um, talked about a chapter from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. It's a fantastic book. You have to read it. It's great. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I love all of his work. I think it's, it's, so, I think it's super smart. I just love it. And this chapter is about cultural legacies. And he describes people in the South and people in the North and how they're different from each other, particularly when it comes from their temper and fighting and stuff like that. I just find it so fascinating that, um, well, I'll just give you a specific example. My brother-in-law from Tennessee, he can tell you 25 different times when he got in a fight with someone in high school. And every time it was because that person said something about his sister, my wife. <laughs> he got a fight with him over it. And it's because he grew up in an honor culture. The South is an honor culture where slights to reputation and slights to your family is a reason to throw down. That's why there's more crime in the South, but it's not um, crime, random crime like carjackings or muggings way lower in the South than in the North. But the crime in the South is, uh, you know, my wife cheated on me with you, so I'm going to go kill you. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that type of crime honor related crimes and people in the North just don't have that same culture. So outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, he outlines the, the, all the reasons why. And he says, the difference is this is crazy, but the difference is people who settled the North hundreds of years ago came from areas of Europe where they farmed and people who settled the South hundreds of years ago came from places of Europe where they herded cattle and sheep 
what what could that, huh? If you were a farmer, no one's going to steal your crops from you. So survival is about cooperation. Survival is about community, working with each other. But if you're a herdsman, someone can steal your sheep. So survival, it's not about cooperation. It's about reputation. It's about strength. It's making sure that everyone nearby knows that if they steal one of your sheep, they're going to die. So Gladwell's argument is that these immigrants to these different areas of our country created a cultural legacy. That's his word, a cultural legacy that still exists today, even hundreds of years later. And even when I didn't grow up a farmer and my brother-in-law didn't grow up herding sheep, right? But still, the cultural legacies exist. They are deep. They are ingrained. And he says they're almost nearly impossible to get rid of. And at this point, they're subliminal. Like we, don't even, we don't even recognize it, but they're there. So he ends the chapter there and just on that fascinating note. But my follow-up to that is, what is the cultural legacy of Muslim families who are coming from these countries? And I'm not talking about you know, blowing people up. It's what I'm talking about. But if you're a Muslim here in America and you have no desire for Sharia law, fine. But if you're coming from a country where you think, you know, we should throw gay people off of a building and if, an, if a woman um, cheats on her husband, no, how about this? If a man rapes someone's wife, then you stone the woman. Okay, we got a problem. If you're going to come here with those values, even with that cultural legacy, that's not going to work because those are contrary to our values. And I think that's entirely in our right to say, you know, you you can't come here. And honestly, why would you want to anyway? And you're saying, ah, Slater, that's, it can't possibly be a lot of people who think that. I want to play a clip a little later from CNN. Um, And the guy on there said, the guest said something like, you know, a lot of Muslims are extremists or something like that. And the anchor went, flipped out on him. Like, how can you say that? That's outrageous. Be specific with, with, you know, what percentage of Muslims think that? And where'd you get your information? Okay. Uh, Pew Research Center. So the most reputable uh, group. Uh, did the most comprehensive analysis on the beliefs of Muslims around the world. And they're as trusted of a source as, as you can ever find. Uh, we'll talk more about the the details of the study later, but just to back up the one thing I said uh, a second ago, uh, stoning adulterers, which is always a woman. So if a man rapes a woman, the woman is the adulterer. What percentage of Muslims in Pakistan think that stoning is a proper punishment for adulterers? What percentage would you guess percentage of Muslims in Pakistan who believe that you should be stoned for uh, being raped? <clears throat> that would be 89%, Alex, 89% of Muslims, 81% in Egypt, 67% in Jordan, 60% in Malaysia, 85% in Afghanistan, even in the modern Muslim country. Uh, or moderate Muslim country of Turkey, 29% of Muslims think that you should be stoned for adultery. Okay, not making this up. It's a problem. And my only point for this segment is to is to tell you it's okay for you to think that that's a problem. And anything I said, I know it. I know it's okay to think that. Well, you're bombarded constantly 
with with cause of you being a bigot and a fearmonger. It's okay to think that stoning a woman for adultery is wrong. And I, I believe it's okay to say, if you think that, I don't think you should live here. You're entitled to your own opinion. But that's a whole different thing. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Slater. It's Slater Crusaders. Thank you for being here. one 888 Happy Saturday. Um, this proposal from the president to make sure that no one on the terror watch list can buy a gun. right? No one on the no-fly list can buy a gun. Because uh, this is the big, right? So after, after the, obviously what happened to San Bernardino, it's a gun control issue. And because all the gun control measures, all the common sense gun control measures are already passed, including the crazy one here in California, which says uh, <laughs> you a new gun model can't be sold in California unless it has this technology called micro stamping that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So new gun models have to get approval from the state in order to be sold here. And unless it has micro stamping, which doesn't exist, it can't be approved for sale. So no new gun models can be sold in California, which means if a gun uh, manufacturer comes up with a more reliable or more durable or safer gun, they can't sell it in California because it doesn't have micro stamping. Why doesn't it have micro stamping? Because it doesn't exist. <clears throat> Sorry. Point is, all the common sense gun control measures have already been passed, so they got to just come up with new things just to say that they're coming up with things. So the latest from the president is if you're on the no fly list, then you're not allowed to buy a gun. Uh, a couple things. First, you know who wasn't on the no fly list? The San Bernardino shooters, nor was the Fort hood shooter, nor were the Boston bombers, nor the Chattanooga shooter. In other words, no perpetrator of any major attack on American soil has been on the no fly list. So, <laughs> so that won't stop anything and also do we do we still not know who who bought two of those guns or at least they haven't told us two of the guns were were bought by someone else and then given to the terrorist straw purchase uh, purchases already illegal uh, and obviously very easy to get around but here's the here's the main point and this is why the la times you know that your gun control measures a flop your gun control proposal when the la times comes out and says it's a bad idea because there's a lot of people on the no-fly list who shouldn't be on the no-fly list. 
Last week, the New York Times wrote an editorial about how uh, cowardly, that's their word, cowardly politicians are for not passing the law that says people on the no-fly list shouldn't be allowed to buy a gun. Okay, That was last week. Last year, the New York Times wrote an editorial, same people, only a year ago, exact same people, wrote an editorial about how the no-fly list is a terrible, inaccurate list made with se- by, by uh, on secret uh, or made secretly with standards that no one has any idea what they are to get on the no-fly list. And the New York Times wrote an editorial about how people's right to fly and their due process rights have been taken away from them because of the the no-fly list. Same people. Last year, they talk about how the no-fly list is a terrible thing. Today, they think uh, they say that the no-fly list should be used as a standard for whether or not you should be allowed to have a gun. So today, all of a sudden, the no-fly list is this rock-solid, ironclad standard that should be used to take people's Second Amendment rights away. You know who's on the terror watch list, among other people? Stephen Hayes, or at least he was for a while. Stephen Hayes writes for, I'm sorry, he also goes by Allahu al-Akbar, Mohammed Jihad. No, Stephen Hayes writes for the Weekly Standard. He's on Fox News a lot. And he's on the terror watch list because he left for a cruise. Uh, he went on a cruise that left from Turkey, so he flew to Istanbul. And then uh, flew back via Athens. So that, that alone put him on the watch list. And you don't even know until you show up for your next flight and they arrest you. Here's another story. This one's a little more common. Uh, Rahina Ibrahim. She's a doctor. This is the New York Times. This is last year the New York Times talking about this. She's a doctor. She flew to Hawaii uh, in 2005. Tried to anyway. She's a doctoral student at uh, Stanford. She was going to an academic conference. And she was arrested at the airline ticket counter, detained for a couple hours, questioned by the FBI. She was on the terror watch list. Now, it was a mistake. She was taken off the list. She uh, was able to fly to Hawaii. And then she flew to Malaysia. And when she tried to return, her visa was revoked. So for whatever reason, she was put back on the list. Even though the FBI says she poses no threat to America. So the New York Times last year said, how can Dr. Ibrahim be a terrorist and not a threat at the same time? Welcome to the shadowy, self-contradictory world of American terror watch lists, which operate under a veil of secrecy so thick that it is virtually impossible to pierce it when mistakes are made. A 2007 audit found that more than half of the 71,000 names then on the no-fly list were wrongly Included. That's the New York Times, April 18th, 2014. And today, the same people think that we should take guns away from or deny guns to everyone on that list. No questions asked. No further discretion allowed. So why would they, begs the question, why would they hold this seemingly contradictory opinion? It's because they don't care. They want to take guns away from everyone. They don't care if they take away guns from the 48,000 people who are on the no-fly list who shouldn't be. They don't care because they want to take guns away from everyone. That's why the president and so many people keep talking about Australia and how wonderful Australia is and how their gun reform was so great. Their gun reform was gun confiscation. So when you hear someone talk about Australia and how wonderful they are, that's what they want to do here. We've got to wrap it up here. But I, listen, I'm, 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 I am not for letting terrorists be allowed to buy guns. Um, And I think if you're on the terror watch list or the no-fly list, there should be extra uh, scrutiny when you are going to go buy a gun. But a blanket across the board law uh, doesn't do anything, and it's just going to lead to more 
abuse. And honestly, why is someone on the terror watch list just not in jail already? I don't want someone on the terror watch list to be able to buy a pack of gum. Like put them put in jail. What are they doing walking around anyway? But the big takeaway is it's another suggestion from a president from the, from the left that we can pass one law, one piece of paper, and then all of this would have been prevented and all future attacks will not happen because we wrote our names on a piece of paper. That is asinine. But it's all done to create the illusion that we are doing something. And we should look more and more to to them to solve our problems because look at all the things they do. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Yes, we have to talk about Donald Trump here for a minute, I guess. Um, Donald Trump's latest proposal that everyone is pretending to be outraged by. And maybe not. I think some people are pretending to be outraged by it. Maybe that's not everyone. But everyone else is being outraged by it without thinking about it for a second and and probably without reading the actual press release. So here's the opening line. It says, Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. So a couple things here. We made some notes this morning. Run through them each real quick. First, I think the until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on is an important qualifier to the first half of the sentence that everyone is focusing on. This isn't forever. It's just until we know who we're allowing into our country. We missed this the other day, but did you know that there are 72 employees at the Department of Homeland Security who are on the terror watch list? Did you hear this the other day? Is that the first you're hearing this? 72 employees at the Department of Homeland Security, which TSA is a part of, among other departments. 72 who are on the terror watch list. Department of Homeland Security can't even properly vet their own employees. And we're supposed to think that they can properly vet refugees and immigrants. Are you kidding me? I, I don't I don't know. They work at the and it's not like they work at the IRS, right? Maybe that'd even be one thing, or if they worked at the um, you know, the EPA. Uh, no, 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 they work at the Department of Homeland Security, the most ironic of all the departments for these people to be working at. That is crazy. That might be the most craziest fact I've ever heard. Okay, so the qualifier, until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on, is, is important here. So when you hear the headlines or you hear the politicians freak out about, oh my gosh, no Muslims allowed in America. First of all, or I should say, I got so many things to say. 
It's no Muslims allowed into America until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. And it also doesn't say we're going to kick out all the Muslims. Just, just hold on a second before we start allowing more in. That's point number one. Second thing, I hear people say this is unconstitutional. The Constitution only applies to people who are citizens of the United States of America. Someone in the Taliban or someone in France or someone in Nigeria or Australia does not have constitutional protections. They're not citizens. So what do you mean it's unconstitutional? It's not unconstitutional to do that. And it's entirely legal. So the law says whenever the president finds that the entry, this is the law of the United States. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens. So this is the Constitution has nothing to do with this because they're not citizens, does not apply, and it is entirely legal for a president to make this uh, proclamation. Third point, I already mentioned this. We're not deporting Muslims or Muslim citizens. The question is, should we bring more Muslims in? Okay, so we've determined that it's legal. Now, is it good policy? That's the next point. So, number four, little context here. Gentlemen, do you remember what percentage of Americans are Muslim? We mentioned this a few times before. What percentage of Americans are Muslim? Uh, so 1% of Americans, maybe maybe one point something, but it's around one. little context. There are very few Muslims in America. It's about 3 million. Uh, France and Germany each have 50% more. They have, one, uh, they have 4.5 million Muslims in each of those countries, and, and a much bigger percentage because the population of France is 66 million and Germany is 80 million, and we're 330 million people. So we have 3 million Muslims in our population. They have 4.5 million in a, in a much smaller uh, overall population. So anyway, just a little context. You can do whatever you want with that. But there's very few Muslims in the United States of America. It's not like the way we're talking about it is like 38% of Americans are Muslim or something. And we're discriminating against this, this large uh, minority, 1%, like almost no one, really. All right, whatever number I'm on, five. Also putting this in the uh, category of context. Uh, I hear all this talk uh, that this proposal from Donald Trump is un-American and contrary to our values of freedom of religion and, and the rest. We have every right to restrict who comes to America. It is the right of every American citizen to practice whatever religion they want and however they want. But a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu has no right to come to America just because we have freedom of religion. I guess that goes back to the Constitution argument, right? Like, we have freedom of religion, but that doesn't mean we have to let in every Muslim or Hindu. or like that They have nothing to do with each other. Those two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But it, this, this isn't even about religion, though. Because we're not concerned about Hindus or Confucians or Jains or Sikhs, right? Like, I don't care. No one's talking about that. 
We're concerned about a very specific concern relevant to the day. And the president even paid lip service to this on his speech on Monday, on uh, Sunday night. He said Muslim leaders here and around the globe have to speak out against not just acts of violence, but also those interpretations of Islam that are incompatible with the values of religious tolerance, mutual respect, and human dignity. Okay, so here's the president of the United States saying Muslim leaders need to step up and, and speak out against these interpretations that are uh, against our values. So if that's true, if there are, as the president says, if there are interpretations of Islam that are incompatible with our values of mutual respect, human dignity, religious tolerance, etc., why, why would we ever let those people into America? <laughs> why would that ever be policy? Why would we ever allow someone in here who doesn't adhere to our most basic values? It's crazy to me that that's even controversial. Why would you ever let someone into America who doesn't agree with our most basic common values? Now that begs the question, this is point number six, what are our basic values? Let me give you a, uh, I'll paint a picture here. I think our values are exemplified by the 31 people, or at least one of our values exemplified by the 31 people who were in that room in San Bernardino last week. We've talked about the victims and we've told some of their stories and we've talked about those who, who were killed and all of those 17 who were killed, gay, straight, man, woman, Iranian, Asian, black, Hispanic, white, Christian, Jewish, pretty much every demographic was among the 17 who were killed. Pretty much every demographic there. Let me just focus on nationalities. Iranian, Asian, black, Hispanic, white. Five different nationalities. In one room, two minutes prior to them laying on the ground after they were shot, they were all having a nice office gathering with each other. That's an American value. Now let's talk about a contrary value. These are Pew Polls. This is the most reputable polling agency in the world. They asked this question and many questions to Muslims in 102 different countries. And they asked the question about being anti-Semitic against Jewish people. 92% of Iraqis are anti-Semitic. 74% of Saudis. 69% of Turks. Those are relatively moderate Muslims, we're told. 69% anti-Semitic. And it goes on. And it's not just in the Middle East. We'll go to Malaysia, right? Malaysia is a, minority, uh, a majority Muslim country. 61% of Muslims in Malaysia are anti-Semitic. They're not even close to Israel. Right next door, Thailand. Majority Buddhist, only 13% anti-Semitic. 61% versus 13%. Uh, so that's, that's a problem right there. That's a problem, which is why we have no problem with Buddhists coming into America. I'll talk about another contrary value. We don't believe in Sharia law. So this is the percentage of Muslims who think that you should get the death penalty for leaving the faith. Let me pull it up here. I actually put this on our Facebook page this morning. 86% of people in Egypt. 86%. In Jordan, 82%. Again, this is people, Muslims who support killing you if you leave the Muslim faith. 
82% of people in Jordan, 66% in Palestine, 76% in Pakistan. This is what I wrote on Facebook this morning, and I'll, if you remember nothing else this segment, just remember this. If you are for religious freedom, are you guys are you for freedom of religion, Director Eric? Yes, sir. Producer Miles, are you for freedom of religion? Yes, sir. Uh, that's wonderful. If you are for freedom of religion, which I am as well, shouldn't you be against letting people into our country who are against freedom of religion? So let's just look at, again, Muslims in Egypt. 86% of them think that if you leave the Muslim faith, you should be killed. To me, that seems contrary to religious freedom. So why would you let a Muslim from Egypt into America? If your ideal is truly freedom of religion, if that's a value you have, why would you let in someone who doesn't believe that? One eight hundred seven sixty, KFMB. I'll take a break here. We got plenty more. But the point is, and I don't think I've ever defended Trump on a thing he's ever said. Right? Think about that. Have I ever defended anything that Trump's ever said? I don't think so. We always analyze Trump from like a you know thirty thousand foot perspective. We don't ever analyze a thing he says. We more analyze how he said it or why he said it or whatever. Trump says we should until we know what's going on exactly and until we can get our act together. We shouldn't let Muslims into America as refugees or immigrants. And critics say that that opinion is against our values of freedom of religion, yet a vast majority of Muslims don't believe in freedom of religion. We're not against Muslims. We're against people who say that if you leave your religion, you should be killed for it. Now, in this case, that happens to be Muslims. But we're not, we're, we're, we're not saying that for any other religion. Because every other religion, or many other religions, and the people we allow into America, have that same value of freedom of religion. Does that make sense? Got it backwards, as always. Slater Radio on Twitter. one 888 Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I forget how many. Uh, thank you, Slater Center. Thank you for being here. I forget how many points I made so far in the last segment. Um, so I only got a couple minutes here left. Uh, let me let me just share a couple numbers here. Um, I, I don't. You don't necessarily need to remember these, but just know that this is the truth as you proceed. Pew poll um, that they did in 2003, and they asked. Uh, percentage of Muslims in different countries who support Osama bin Laden. Now, this is 2003, two years after 9-11, or a year and a half or so. Uh, percentage of Muslims who supported Osama bin Laden. Palestine, 72%. Indonesia, 59%. Jordan, 56%. Nigeria, 45%. Pakistan, 46%. Now, that's 2003. Support for bin Laden has fallen since. But still, in Egypt, 22% of Muslims support Osama bin Laden. Pew poll done last spring. Question, do you have a blank view of ISIS? Unfavorable, favorable, 
or don't know. In Pakistan, 9% said favorable. 62% said, you know, I don't know. So that's 70, 71% of Muslims in Pakistan who can't bring themselves to be against ISIS. That's a major problem. And that's why I get frustrated when you're the Islamophobe, right? When you're the crazy, hate-mongering bigot and, and fear-mongerer. And, and we're the people saying, no, 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 no. 22% of people in Egypt support Osama bin Laden. Today, they support Osama. Why, why would you want that person here? And you say, well, I don't. I want uh, the good people in Egypt. Oh, me too. Me too. How do we know, though? Because the truth is we don't. Or at least the system that we have in place right now, we, 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 we can't figure it out. Do you know there are uh, almost 1,000 active probes into ISIS supporters in America right now? It's according to the FBI. 1,000. Why do we want more? If nothing else, Donald Trump's proposal has moved the Overton window. And I know you, a fan of Glenn Beck, knows what the Overton window is. He's not only moved it, he's shattered it. So now we can have this conversation. And maybe the end result isn't we ban all Muslims. But maybe the end result is we have a conversation about people from certain countries shouldn't come or how we can have a, a better filter to find out who the good people are. The people who are going to share American values. American values. And if nothing else, if that's all that Donald Trump's proposal did, then that's a great victory. Because in the meantime, the last couple of years, we haven't had any conversation about this whatsoever. And the whole country is blind to the support that Osama bin Laden has in the Muslim world still today. one 888 Mike Slater to the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Um, I wanted to start off this hour with the story of Shannon Johnson, but... Maybe I'll do that next. I, and the reason why is because I, I, th- I think we may have a new motto of the show. I, I think maybe even this should be a new uh, motto for our country, unofficial motto for our country. It's, um, it's, I, I just value this person so much and we, we need to know him. Uh, so I'm excited to share his story. We'll do that next. Also coming up, I want to read a speech from Teddy Roosevelt. A speech he gave in 1903. Guess where he gave this speech? San Bernardino, California. How could what he said 113 years ago, 112 years ago, be relevant to today? Uh, I'll prove that coming up. Also, I want to play a speech from uh, a Navy SEAL, actually the commander, former commander of U.S. Special Operations. Uh, So we got a lot to do. Let me start off here with the great... Mark Stein. He wrote this piece actually in uh, 2000, I believe. Um, I just want to read a paragraph or two here. A few months ago, Shirley Best, owner of the Rolander Fashion Boutique, whose clients include the daughter of the Princess Royal, was ironing some garments when two youths 
broke in. They pressed the hot iron into her side and stole her watch, leaving her badly burnt. I was frightened to defend myself, said Miss Best. I thought if I did anything, I would be arrested. Think about that for a beat here. You're in your home. You're in your business. People come into your business and assault you, right? Push a hot iron into your side, steal things from you, from your store, and you have a moment of hesitation to do anything about it because you think that you may be arrested for it. Stein goes on, and who can blame her? Shortly, uh, shortly before the attack, she'd been reading about Tony Martin, a Norfolk farmer whose home had been broken into, and who had been responded and who responded by shooting and killing the teenage burglar. He was charged with murder. In April, he was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment for defending himself against a career criminal in the area where the police are far away and reluctant to have their sleep disturbed. Norfolk is a remote rural corner of England. It ought to be as peaceful and crime-free as any remote rural uh, corner in New England. But it isn't. Old impressions die hard. Americans still think of Britain as a low-crime country. Conversely, the British think of America as a high-crime country, but neither impression is true. The overall crime rate in England and Wales is 60% higher than that of the United States. Now, true, in America, you're more likely to be shot to death. On the other hand, in England, you're more likely to be strangled to death. But in both cases, the statistical likelihood of being murdered at all is remote especially if you steer clear of the drug trade. But when it comes to anything else, burglary, auto theft, armed robbery, violent assault, rape, the crime rate reaches deep into British society. In most, in many ways, Americans, are in, 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 excuse me, the crime rate reaches deep into British society in ways most Americans would find virtually inconceivable. Point is, Fewer guns equals more crime. And we've been saying on the show for years, I want a government and police forces that empower citizens, not makes them more dependent. And I certainly don't want a government and a set of laws that makes it so if someone's robbing you or your store, your home, and and assaulting you, you hesitate to do anything about it because you think you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. But that's what it's like in England right now. Did you see the video a couple days ago of a Muslim guy in a subway in London with a knife? Did you see this? This didn't make that much news because it wasn't dramatic enough. But Muslim guy in a subway, he stabbed two people. I think he slit. I think he stabbed one guy and maybe slit the other guy's throat. Just a couple days ago. And you may think I'm making this part up, but in 2014, did you know that there was a movement in England called Save a Life, Surrender Your Knife? <laughs> I'm not kidding. There was, there was a movement to ban pointy knives. And police forces in England had amnesty programs for knives. Why? Because there's so much knife crime in England. 
And there are marches. Do you think I'm making this up? I'm not. There's marches with thousands of people through the streets of London calling for the end to knife crime. BBC did an article uh, and they said that uh, kitchen knives are used in half of all stabbings. And they said that we should ban pointy knives. And they even uh, interviewed 10 of the top chefs across England and found that pointy knives have little value in the kitchen. So (laughs) no more pointy knives because they're being used for crimes so frequently. There's not a lot of knife crime in America. And probably the number one reason for that is person's afraid that the person they want to attack will shoot them. One last thing on, on guns here. Take a break. So The Nation, which is a uh, progressive magazine, uh, their, their reporter wrote about guns and actually did some research. So I want to give them props here for a moment. So you may have seen some headlines last couple days about how much ammunition the terrorists had. They had 2,500 rounds of ammunition. So this reporter at The Nation, he said, many in the media say that this suggests a level of planning typical of terrorists. But in fact, millions of Americans have that same kind of arsenal at home. The AR-15 is the most popular gun in America. Around 8 million have been sold. And 2,500 rounds of ammo for the AR-15 seems horrifying to an anti-gun middle-class liberal like me. That's enough bullets to kill 2,500 people. But in fact, ammo is sold in 1,000 round boxes. (laughs) It's not unusual for gun owners to buy several boxes when the price is low. Think about that. You saw that on headlines, right? It was the New York Daily News. It it had a list of uh, the bombs and guns that the the terrorists had. And one of the the, the statistics was 2,500 rounds of ammunition. And if you don't know what you're talking about, you look at that and you're like, oh my goodness gracious, it's an arsenal. Well, not if they sell it in thousand round boxes. It's two and a half boxes. That's <laughs> uh, the guy goes on. He says, "I asked Mark Cooper about it. He's an award winning journalist and a friend who's also a gun person. Two thousand five hundred rounds, I said. And he told me, well, believe it or not, these are modest amounts of ammo. A gun hobbyist, a target shooter, can easily go through five hundred rounds in one two hour visit to the range." Another friend said, "It's like buying forty eight rolls of toilet paper when you go to Costco." I like this writer doing uh, doing some research, questioning the the narrative presented, the narrative his colleagues are presenting, which is clearly a narrative based on uh, on ignorance. Can we play? Um, do we have clip twelve here? We got a minute. Can we play clip twelve? This is. Uh, I, I want to play these two clips here because these are the people who are. Passing gun control bills or uh, making the, the call that we need more gun control. And they know nothing about guns. Nothing at all. And, and we're supposed to trust them to make, to pass the right kind of bills. Um, so I just want to give two California examples. This is Loretta Sanchez. She's a uh, California congresswoman. She's in LA. This is her just a couple days ago. What's your reaction? 
Well, first of all, when the speaker says we're doing so much, the reality is the Congress has been trying to get up some of these issues for the last five years, and we haven't been able to. We let the assault weapons ban, which was led by our Senator Dianne Feinstein, we let that lapse. So, um, you know, multi-automatic uh, round weapons are easily available, even though not in California. So multi-automatic rounds weapons. That's not a thing. That doesn't. That doesn't exist. What, what's up? What are what are multi-automatic round weapons? Not a thing. Uh, this is State Senator Kevin DeLeon. He is the president of the uh, the State Senate. He's also from LA. This is a press conference from a couple of years ago. This is a ghost gun. This right here has ability with a thirty caliber clip to disperse with thirty bullets within half a second. Thirty magazine clip in half a second. Okay. Thirty magazine clip in half a second. That's gibberish. That makes no sense. That's not that doesn't like gun people are listening to that and say what? That doesn't make any sense. So I I, I share this to our uh, gun hating progressive friends. When you talk about banning something that you have no idea what you're talking about. That's naturally going to make us uncomfortable because there's no way that your legislation that you want to write will be written in a coherent, informed, and narrow way because you have no idea what you're doing. Does that, does that make sense? Like When you talk about 30 magazine clips in half a second, like... Like this, you won't be trusted because because anyone who knows what you're talking about or what you're trying to talk about will listen to that and say, "Well, he he doesn't he doesn't have any idea what that." Is. So no, you're you're not gonna again. This is my advice to you. Like I am not gonna follow you in your suggestions when you talk like that because that's not a that's gibberish. Those words, thirty magazine clip in half a second, multi-automatic round weapons, <laughs> crazy. So. For your own good, you need to take a class at Poway Weapons and Gear, take an intro to gun class, so you at least know the terminology that you're talking about. And the rest of us need to do the same, but for a different reason, so that we can protect our families. So that we can pray for the best, but be prepared for the worst. I want to come back with um, Shannon Johnson. This is a... Uh, a man whose story, whose values, whose last words, uh, we need to know. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I want to tell the story of Shannon Johnson. Shannon Johnson was at his Christmas work party, or his work Christmas party uh, last week. He was in that room when the two terrorists came in, started shooting. He's 45 years old. He was also with Denise. Denise is 27. And they were both huddled underneath a table behind a chair as they were getting shot at. He was shot. 
when Shannon later died, he was among the 17 who were killed. Denise survived. And she says, while I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words. I got you. I am here today because of this amazing man. This is Shannon Johnson, my friend, my hero. I got you. That should be our unofficial national motto. I got you. To me, that's as heroic as Todd Beamer on United 93 on 9-11 when he said, let's roll. Same idea, right? I got you. What does that mean, I got you? It's the only way we're ever going to survive. Forget about the terrorist threat for a second. I'm not talking about terrorist attacks. I got you is the only way we will ever survive anything. It's the only way we ever make it through any tragedy, any heartbreak, any disappointment, anything ever. I got you is all we have in the end because we can't do it by ourselves. And everyone needs someone at some point to say, I got you. It's what we say to our kids, right? All when they're growing up, we say, I got you. When they're learning to walk, right? they're stumbling around. You say, I got you. Don't worry, I got you. When our kids are learning to swim, Right, they'll be kicking on the surface and your hands are underneath their stomach and you're helping keeping them afloat. And you say, keep kicking, keep kicking. I got you. When your kid's learning to ride a bike and you're right behind them, keeping them steady, keep pedaling, keep pedaling. I got you. That's your wedding vow, basically, isn't it? I got you. I can't, can't it all be summed up with, I got you. Wife, when times are hard, I got you. Husband, when times are hard, I got you. We've got each other. We're one. We're a team. I got you. When someone has a loss in their family, you know, we, we, we want to do something. You know, a lot of things that people do is, uh, or one thing that people, a lot of people do is um, cook food, right? You, you know, someone, you know, friend, someone in your church who lost someone in their life or, um, uh, someone is in the hospital or something and, and there's a, a food, um, what do they call it? A food calendar, but a schedule that people come together with and, and everyone makes a, an item of food for that person one day of the week uh, for the next month or whatever. That, that is, that's, I got you. That's what that is. I got you. I know you're too busy to worry about food and to make food. I got you. I want a coworker has to take time off of work to take care of, uh, of a dying mother. Uh, you say, Hey, listen, go be with your mom. I got you. Everything you're supposed to do here at your work, I got you, I got you. Go, 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 go. Our service members, that's how our military works. Right? That's the only way it works. Ask any service member what they were thinking about when they were fighting. Why they fight. It's because of the guy next to me. I'm fighting to protect the life of the guy next to me. That only works if the guy next to him says the same thing. That's I got you. That's all that is, having your back, I got you. 
the key to leadership is being willing to do anything that you ask people below you to do. And that's why the greatest leaders in battle always ride in the front of the ranks, right? The greatest leaders in business always stay connected with their employees. It's a way of saying, I got you. And to bring it back to this just last week, when bullets are flying, when you think you're going to die, you're stuck. You're stuck in this room. Guys got two people got guns firing at you. To have the wherewithal, the awareness, and the ability to slow things down long enough to notice the young girl next to you and to be aware of her fear, to, to push aside your concern and be aware of her fear and how scared she is. And in the midst of, an, of this evil and chaos and, and a perfect excuse to be selfish for a moment, Shannon Johnson said, I got you. And she's alive because of it. He was right. He fulfilled his promise. I got you. And specifically to terrorism, it's the only way we're going to get through this. Because it's going to get worse. Everyone knows it's going to get worse. And the last thing we need to do is pick teams. And every time there's a terrorist attack, we fight each other, right? The gun, the gun control camp goes over there. The Islamic extremism team goes over there. And then we fight each other. And when it gets worse, there's going to be a lot of times when we're going to have to say, I got you. Even when it's someone on the other team, if you will. And when you, who have been preparing... And a family comes to you who hasn't been preparing. You'll have a chance to say, I got you. And God forbid if you're ever in the midst of a shooting or an explosion, will you be the person who says, I got you. Slater Radio on Twitter, 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. It's Slater Crusaders. Thank you for being here. one 888 Happy Saturday. Uh, I want to chat a second here about, and we were talking to uh, Stephen Hayward. He's written a couple books. Uh, he's a visiting professor at Pepperdine and, and author of books about Reagan and Churchill. I think he wrote a book about Reagan. He wrote a book about Churchill, and then he wrote a book about both of them. So he's done a lot of studying of these characters. Um, and he, I asked him the most important aspect of leadership when it comes, as it relates to these two gentlemen, these two giants. And the word he used, I love it. I've been thinking a lot about it. Moral clarity. He said they both had a laser-focused moral clarity. Most important characteristic of leadership. The ability to say this is right, this is wrong, this is uh, righteous, this is evil. When Neville Chamberlain came back uh, after meeting with Hitler, 
Now, he was the Prime Minister of England. He met with Hitler. And uh, Neville Chamberlain said, oh, things are going to be great. Talked it out. We're good to go. There's peace in our time. That's what he said. And everyone said, oh, thank goodness. Really worried about that guy over there, but uh, we're good to go now. Uh, And Churchill at the time gave the very unpopular opinion. This is what he said. He said, that power which spurns Christian ethics, which cheers its onward course by a barbarous paganism, which vaunts the spirit of aggression and conquest, which derives strength and perverted pleasure from persecution and uses, as we have seen, with pitiless brutality, the threat of murderous force. Now, this was before Churchill was prime minister. That's how he described the Nazis and Hitler. That is moral clarity. The ability to call the enemy what it is. I think it's pretty obvious that our, our leaders today, many of them don't have such moral clarity and our president in particular, and I don't want to focus too much on him, but, um, he and many others come from a tradition of uh, ivory tower academia because in college town, there's no such thing as moral clarity. Academia land, no such thing as moral clarity because to them, ah, it's far too simple. And, and you, you're, you're a simple tin. If you see things in, uh, stark terms. There's no such thing as black and white. You've heard that a million times. There needs to be more nuance. They love nuance because they, they, they think they're so smart and they need to think all the time. Right? So it can't be so simple. So they got to find nuance. A country can't be a part of an evil empire. That's not fair to label an entire country or even an, an ideology that way, because there may be some good things in that ideology too. And who's to say that our ideology is much better, really? There's always more nuance. And that's the world that our president came from. That's what we voted for. And that's why you get ISIS is uh, JV. That's why you get ISIS is a group of people who are looking for thrills. That's why you get Christians did bad things in the Crusades, right? It's all ambiguity. It's all nuance. Rupert Murdoch, who's speaking out a lot more lately, he wrote a nice piece the other day. He said in his great book, World Order, Henry Kissinger wrote, America must retain its sense of direction. For America to have a sense of direction, two conditions are essential. First, a U.S. leader must understand, be proud of, and assert the American personality. An identity crisis is not a starting point for any journey. Second, there must be clear goals informed by values and by a realization of the extraordinary potential of its people. And around our country, there's a restless desire for revival. Do you feel that? Not to talk more about Trump, but I think that's part of it, right? That's what it is. Of course it is. Uh, make America great, right? It's the restless desire for revival to be great again. Clearly, he's tapped into that. 
And importantly, Rupert Murdoch says there's a yearning outside the country for American assertiveness and engagement, as we've seen in Syria and in the Ukraine and in the streets of Paris, without this country's self-confident championing of that human quest for freedom and humane, humane values. Global affairs collapse into nightmare and policy wasteland becomes fertile territory for terror. It's awesome. And he goes on to talk about how our military helped save the world during World War II. Um, and he says, listen, we don't, it's not necessarily military engagement. That, that, that's not where our greatness or strength even comes from, the engagement part. Uh, Rupert Murdoch says it, it's our confidence that makes the difference. It's our moral clarity. He didn't use those words, but um, that's what we're talking about. It's our moral clarity that makes the difference even without using the military. Uh, we have no direction. The president even says that he was elected to end wars, not to start them. How's that going? Because the truth is moral clarity prevents wars. Moral preening does not. Let's keep an eye for that uh, in the next couple months here. Moral clarity. And don't get discouraged. I mean, that's sort of been the theme of today's show, actually, is not to be discouraged by people in the media or academia telling you you're a bigot, telling you that you're basing opinions on fear, telling you that you're stoking fear, or telling you that you're a simpleton because you see things black and white. Don't buy that. Don't listen to that. Always search for the truth. And if you have moral clarity, which is a virtue, then yeah, things may seem simple. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Mike Slater will continue in a moment on the blaze radio network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's go to Gregory about something we talked about earlier. How are you today, Gregory? Good. Thanks for calling. Uh, so you have a friend who uh, is a terrorist. That's what it says here. You have a friend who's a terrorist? Yeah. <laughs> no, not me. Um, my daughter's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. As it disagreed with Obama's policies on Facebook and Twitter, and now they put him on the no-fly list. So your daughter's boyfriend is on the no-fly list. That's correct. How did he find out? He tried to fly. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the thing about it. You don't know until you try to get on a plane. You don't know. He tried to go take a trip on his his uh, fire buddy, and that's like. So he says, yeah, I'm on an no-fly list. And I go, wow. And I'm probably on a no-fly list either. I have Facebook and Twitter. I kind of agree with the Obama's policies too. So what's what's his first name, if you don't mind me asking? Um, Lou. Oh, so- 
Samahama, not Akamaka, or something like that. It's, <laughs> There's no it's funnier name Lou. you could have chosen there, Gregory. There's no funnier name. Lou. Yeah. That's Lou. good. So did they arrest him? Did they question him? Did they detain him? No, unfortunately not. He just found out from before he got the got you know, got there that he was on the little fly list and why even to try. Yeah, so know? so then what? So so as he go to get off of it. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is he tried to get off it or Yeah. I don't know who you call for I don't that. know. I don't know what to tell him. <laughs> yeah, would you like go to the post office for that? Like I don't know <laughs> who do you contact to try yeah, to get off the I don't the... know what to tell him. I don't know what to do. I don't I guess I I I just he tells me he's on a far list and I go, gee, that's too bad. I'm thinking about it. I'm probably on the no-play list, too. Well, listen, to be honest, his parents should have thought about that before giving him a name like Lou, right? I mean, because we all know Lou's. I mean, that's that's the problem. All right, well, Greg, Uh, I don't know what to tell you or him either, but (laughs) thanks for the call, man. Appreciate it. The the reason it's – thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Lou. (laughs) His name's Lou. (laughs) That's great. Um so as I don't think I don't know or whatever that that yeah put on there for that reason because um, we told the story before about Ted Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts for how many years was he the senator eighty three years or something? Um, he was on the no fly list because one you know Muhammad Akbar uh, had an alias of T Kennedy, so Ted Kennedy was stopped and put or because he was on the no fly list right so. It could be any number of reasons why Lou was put <laughs> on the no-fly list. But here's the problem with that, with the no-fly list and the president's proposal. Let's back it up one second. San Bernardino, terrorist attack. Of course, it's not a terrorist attack. It's a, um, it's a gun control issue. So because it's a gun control issue, the president had to come out with some gun control proposal that would have stopped said uh, attack by uh, a male and female who have nothing to do with terrorism or Islam at all. So they came up with this goofy proposal that if you're on the you no know, watch uh, the terror uh, no fly list, then you can't buy a gun. And at first glance, it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense. But two things: first, you know who wasn't on the no fly list? The Fort Hood shooter. The two San Bernardino shooters, the Boston bombers, the Chattanooga shooter, not a single perpetrator of any major terrorist attack on American soil has been on the no-fly list. So it wouldn't have stopped what happened, which is so weird when something bad happens. Oh, gosh, this goes back into, we talked about it last week, theodicy. So theodicy is the, the religious study which answers the question, basically, why do bad things happen to good people? Right, it's a question as old as time. Why do bad things happen to good people? That study is called theodicy. Uh, theo, God, uh, disi means it comes from the word for meaning justice. So, um, what we have here is another example of theodicy of government, which is why does bad things happen to good government? Because progressives and the president thinks that government is perfect, all-knowing, omnipotent, can do no wrong. So if something bad happens, it's because there's not enough government or more specifically, someone or some group of people is in the way of this all perfect government having its proper rule upon the nation. And those people are called uh, Republicans. 
So the immediate thing is, oh my gosh, a bad thing happened. I want all government because then there'll be no more bad things. And the people who are preventing all powerful government are these Republicans. So it's their, therefore it's their fault. It's a perfect example of that because otherwise, why would you suggest a proposal that after a, after an attack that would not have stopped the attack? So like it's what, okay. So like after nine 11, we banned box cutters from airplanes. Okay. I mean, like, so at least there's a one-to-one there, right? <laughs> so box cutters. Okay. That, that part of the attack. Okay. No more box cutters. Okay. It may make sense. Okay. Good. Okay. This had nothing to do with the attack. It wouldn't have stopped this attack or any attack that it's ever happened in America. But that doesn't matter because any step we can take towards that omnipotent government rule again is all the better. So the New York Times, we mentioned this earlier, the New York Times last week wrote an editorial um, about how this is such a great proposal. But last year, the New York Times wrote an article about how the no-fly list is stupid because it puts people like Lou on the list and there's nothing you can do about it. Let me see if I can pull up this line here. Do, 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 do. A really good sentence had the word shadowy in it. I can't find it here. <laughs> here it is. Um, welcome to the shadowy. This is New York times last year. Welcome to the shadowy self-contradictory world of American terror watch lists which operate under a veil of secrecy so thick that it is virtually impossible to pierce it when mistakes are made. A 2007 audit found that more than half of the 71,000 names uh, on the no-fly list were wrongly included, including Lou. So last year, the New York Times says the no-fly list is a joke. This year, they think it's so rock-solid perfect that we should just take all the guns away from people on it and ban anyone who's on it from ever getting a gun. Now I'm for anyone who's on the terror watch list or no fly list to have extra scrutiny, extra, extra tight scrutiny when they go through background checks and whatnot, but a full blanket across the board, you can't get a gun. That doesn't make any sense, nor would it have stopped any of the attacks that have happened. 1-800-760-KFMB. All right, coming up next. Uh, thanks for the call, Greg. Better watch out for your boyfriend's or your daughter's boyfriend there, by the way. Surprised even let her come home with a boy named Lou. Knowing all the Lou's, all the Lou's lately have been doing around the world. Um, coming up next, a speech from Teddy Roosevelt and uh, a Navy SEAL. We'll compare them both next. Mike Slater, just spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Later, Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want to start off here with Kurt Schlichter. He wrote a review for the book Heavy Lifting, Grow Up, Get a Job, Start a Family, and Other Manly Advice. 
Uh, it's a book about how to be a man, not a postmodern hipster man, but an actual real man. And they're not reinventing the wheel in said book. They're uh, restoring the wheel. And I just want to read this line here. I think it's good. Richard Nixon called them the silent majority. Bill Clinton meant them when he talked about people who worked hard and played by the rules. They fight the wars, pay the taxes, and they vote. They built this. And that is why the left must suppress the normals. The elites need them to do society's work, but they can't afford to let them be aroused at election time. So we, need the, so we see the media in Hollywood portraying us normals as dull, dreary drones who need guidance and inspiration from our betters in the liberal elites. That's why being a man is a rebel act. By being man, you reject the role the liberal elite has prepared for you, that of a weak, confused man-child unfit to be sovereign over your own destiny. Taking care of your family, yourself, repudiates them. Defending your family, especially when you exercise your fundamental Second Amendment rights, repudiates them. Raising your children as strong, independent Americans instead of spoiled, cry-bullying snowflakes repudiates them. Just being normal repudiates them. I like that word, cry-bullying. Never heard that, cry-bullying snowflake. I want to focus on the defending your family part there for a second. So on my local show the other day, we uh, talked to a 16-year-old. Oh, he's 18 now. But when he was 16, he rescued someone from drowning. And they were in the Lake Huron, I believe. And the most amazing thing is no one else on, on, the, on the, the, the land did anything. It was only him. He wasn't even nearby. Two girls had to run. He was playing volleyball, and they ran to him and said, hurry, hurry, someone's drowning. And he ran to the area and was the only person to do anything. And I asked him what he was most proud of about this experience. And he thought about it for a second, and he said, I'm proud that I was prepared. Which is such a profound thing to say. He was proud that he prepared his whole life by being a good swimmer. That, that's what he, I, I was proud that I was prepared to swim. I was, I was a good swimmer, maybe better than anyone else in the area. I, I knew the, the, the water and all this. Uh, so I was prepared to help. I love it. I want the American people. I want you to be prepared when it comes to protecting your family. Please find your local gun range and take a gun safety class. It's classes for beginners, classes for people who have never held a gun before in their life. And that could be you. And if nothing else, take a gun safety class so you can learn proper gun terminology. And I say this even to people who are against guns. If you want gun control, you need to take a gun safety class so that you can learn the terminology so you can properly argue your point. It is painfully obvious to people who know anything about guns that people who argue most against guns have no idea what they're talking about. I just want to play two examples here. This is Loretta Sanchez. She's a uh, congresswoman from California. She's actually, um, uh, I think, more Anaheim, but Los Angeles area. Uh, this is her just the other day. Your reaction. 
Well, first of all, when the speaker says we're doing so much, the reality is the Congress has been trying to get up some of these issues for the last five years, and we haven't been able to. We let the assault weapons ban, which was led by our Senator Dianne Feinstein, we let that lapse. So, um, you know, multi-automatic uh, round weapons are easily available, even though not in California. I want the American people, and I want the people who listen to this show, I want you to be prepared when it comes to protecting your family. Please take a gun safety class. There are classes for uh, beginners. There's classes for people who have never held a gun before in your entire life. Please go take a gun safety class. If nothing else, truly if nothing else, you can learn gun terminology. And that alone will make you smarter than 98% of Americans. People who are against guns, who argue for gun control, they know nothing about gun terminology. And I I shouldn't expect them to necessarily. Well, I should expect. You would think if you were arguing to ban something, you would at least do a little bit of research into what you're talking about. And the fact that they know nothing about it is painfully obvious to people who do know something about guns. Not even that much, but just like basic terminology. I want to play two clips here, two local examples. This is uh, Loretta Sanchez. She's a California congresswoman from... Uh, Los Angeles. This is just her just a uh, couple of days ago. Clip 12, good sir. So multi-automatic round weapons. I mean, that's nails on a chalkboard. Anyone who knows anything about gun- multi-automatic round weapons, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. There's, there's, <laughs> it doesn't exist. It's just words. Uh, this one's even better. This is State Senator Kevin DeLeon. He's the president of the State Senate in California. This is a couple of years ago. He was doing a press conference in um, um, Sacramento. That makes no sense. That, that doesn't, those words together don't make any sense. He might as well have said uh, monkey, giraffe, telephone pole, chair i mean that, that, that 30 magazine clip happens it makes no sense so ken white he he made up a conversation where uh terminology is is poorly used just to make it a little more sense a little more sense about how wrong this uh people are with gun terminology so every once in a while uh maybe once or twice a year there's a, a nationwide conversation about dangerous dogs right usually rottweilers pit bulls something like that so ken just made up this conversation uh, between someone who is in favor of banning Rottweilers and and someone else. Okay, so two people. Someone's in favor of banning Rottweilers. Here's how the conversation goes. Um, person says, "Listen, I don't want to take away dog owners' rights, but we need to do something about Rottweilers." Okay, so so what do you propose? Well, I, I just think that there should be some sort of training or restrictions on owning an attack dog. Wait a second. What's an attack dog? Well, you know what I mean? Like military dogs. Huh? Rottweilers aren't military dogs. And in fact, military dogs isn't a thing. You mean like German shepherds? Oh, don't be ridiculous. Nobody's trying to take away your German shepherds, but civilians shouldn't own fighting dogs. Fighting dogs. I've, I have no idea what dogs you're talking about now. Oh, come on. You're being 
picky and obtuse. You know, I, I mean hounds. Hounds? <laughs> what? Okay, well, maybe not actually hounds. Uh, sure, maybe I have the terminology wrong. I'm not obsessed with vicious dogs like you. But we can identify the kinds of dogs that civilians just don't need to own. Well, I had to put you... Right, so in that conversation, the person goes from Rottweilers to attack dogs to military dogs to German shepherds and fighting dogs and hounds. And at the end of it, you're like, what are you talking about? And the thing is, they don't even know. So what... And it's the same thing with guns, right? 30 magazine... What did he say? How did he put 30 magazine clip in half a second? What are you talking... What gun control progressives need to understand is that when you don't know what you're talking about, the ban that you want to enact makes us uncomfortable. Because I don't know what you're saying. Like you, so you you hold up. This is the senator, uh, state president of the state senate in California. We want to ban a ghost gun because it has a thirty magazine clip in half a second, and and we say what? So, so you're you're ban you're wanting to ban this thing. Does it makes us uncomfortable because I don't know what you're talking about. So I can't possibly we can't have a conversation about it because we're just we're on different we're using different languages here. Please take a gun safety class. Know what you're talking about, and you won't say ignorant things. I I, I promise you, if I wanted to ban something. I would hone up on what exactly that thing was before going on TV to talk about it. <clears throat> and if you're a conservative and you want to uh, to go back to uh, the article I read at the top of the hour here, uh, if you're a conservative and you want to repudiate the left, take a gun safety class. Buy a gun. Worse yet, know how to use it. And even worse than that, Know the terminology of it. Again, that alone makes you smarter than 98% of people on this very important topic that I wish everyone uh, knew more about. 1-800-760-KFMB, 1-800-765-362. Coming up next, um, I heard Armstrong Getty this morning talk about hate crimes. Especially hate crimes against Muslims in America. I just want to provide a little bit of context um, to this story right here. I think it's important because the media won't give you proper context on, on hate crimes in America. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. And um, you can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. If you listen to the show a bit, you know that I love love truth that reveals more of the picture. I, I love the feeling of realization. Is that right? Like, like the, the, the feeling I get that 
when I know I've been looking at something and I only see maybe 5% of the picture and then I learn something and it's, and you just see more. Now you see 50% of the picture, just a more complete story. I love stories. I love stories of context. So I want to share one here. So every time there's a terrorist attack, there's always stories about anti-Muslim bias. Now the anti-Muslim bias almost never happens. The most dramatic example of this was in Australia. I remember last year, actually, I think it was right around now. Um, there was a terrorist who took I think 18 people hostage in a chocolate shop or was it a coffee shop in Sydney? I think killed two, injured four. This is last December. So the next day, there was this hashtag going around the interwebs. Do you remember this? Hashtag, I'll ride with you. Hashtag, I'll ride with you. And it started because a woman uh, was on a train the next day after the attack, and she saw a Muslim woman wearing a headscarf. And this woman was verbally attacked while on the train, and she felt so much shame that she started to take her headscarf off. And the woman jumped from her seat and said, Ma'am, ma'am, put your headscarf back on. I'll walk with you to the next stop. And they cried and they hugged. And, and, and the bigots who were ready to assault this woman were stopped dead in their tracks. Ah, beautiful story. Hashtag I'll ride with you. It picked up all over the world as a statement against anti-Muslim bigotry. The thing is, it never happened. That train encounter, that never happened. A couple weeks later, the woman said she made it all up. Never, the, woman, the, the Muslim woman on the train didn't, didn't exist. No bigotry. Didn't see anything. The whole thing didn't happen. But everyone's in this all like self-righteous, I'll ride with you nonsense, and it went all over the world. So I've heard a lot about anti-Muslim bigotry these last few days. Now, I will say, the other day I did hear an actual story. Someone dropped a severed pig's head at a mosque in Philadelphia. So severed pig's head outside a mosque in Philadelphia. That is a hate crime against Muslims in a country of 330 million people and 3 million Muslims. So that is one. Now the Attorney General, you know, the other day said she's going to prosecute anyone who says any bad things about Muslims. No word yet on if she's going to go after Donald Trump for his hateful comments the other day. But let's talk about anti-Muslim hate crime. Now of course do we need to do the disclaimer that that all of this is atrocious and there should be no hate crimes and uh, no severed pig's heads or anything like that. That's absurd. Guys, okay, so do we need to do that disclaimer? I think we're all adults here. We can have this conversation. But the FBI just released their hate crime statistics for 2014. So of all the hate crimes in the country last year, 48% of them were because of someone's race. So 48% were race-related. 18% were uh, based on someone's sexual orientation. And 17% of all the hate crimes were due to religion. Right? So you take all the hate crimes in America, 17% due to religion. All right, uh, due to religion. All right, so we'll take we'll break down that category. So there's there were 1,140 victims. So we'll call it a thousand. A thousand victims of anti-religious hate crime last year. Now, 
You think of a thousand victims. Now, clearly, most of those attacks are going to be on Muslims because I'm first we're a country of bigots, as we're told by the president. And we hate all Muslims. We're at war with Muslims. And, uh, you know, we want to round them all up in internment camps, as Trump said the other day, even though he didn't say that, but people are saying he said that. And making opinions based on what he said as if he said that, even though he didn't say that. But he might as well have said that, we're told. So, right, a thousand hate crimes. um, And we're at war with um, radical Islam, and we're told we got to be careful. We can't use that word. Hillary Clinton, all the rest. They say we can't use radical Islam. I don't say that because that feels, uh, makes the moderate Islam, uh, Muslims feel bad, blah, 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 blah. blah. So, uh, So, you would think of the thousand. Religious-related hate crimes, uh, almost all of them are uh, against Muslims. Uh, 57%, actually, 57% of hate crimes against someone's religion are crimes against Jews. 57% of the hate crimes in America are against Jewish people. 16% against Muslims. Significantly less than the number of hate crimes against Jews. But no one talks about the epidemic of anti-Jewish rhetoric in America. Hmm. Even though, you know, most Muslims around the world are anti-Semitic. We talked a lot about this uh, Pew study that was done two years ago. And they polled 103 Muslim countries around the world. Or I should say... They polled the Muslims in 103 countries around the world. So in Malaysia, which, and I say Malaysia because they're not close to Israel. So it's one thing if you want to poll Muslims in Jordan or whatever. These are Muslims in Malaysia. 65% of Muslims in Malaysia are anti-Semitic. 65%. They're not even close to Israel. Next door to Malaysia is Thailand. Now they're mostly Hindu. And 13% are anti-Semitic there. So that's weird. There's a problem. In the Muslim faith with Jewish people. Breaking news. And even here in America, most of the hate crimes, 57% of the religious hate crimes are against Jewish people. 16% against Muslims. Now, one last thing here. 16% of 1,140 crimes, it's 182. Now again, 182, too many. But I think the perspective there is, is important. Now, a hate crime, what is a hate crime, right? Begs the question. It can range from murder to vandalism. So of all the hate crimes, not just the religious ones, of all the hate crimes, four victims were murdered. 43% were victims of intimidation. 37% uh, uh, simple assault. 19% aggravated assault. Uh, Of the crimes against property, 72% of those were vandalism, right? So my point is, of all the hate crime victims, four, and not just religion, but sexual orientation, uh, race, whatever, four were murdered. Most of the rest, intimidation, assault, vandalism. None of them acceptable. We're adults here. We can have this conversation. None of them acceptable, but not worth the constant lecturing and painting this picture that we are an oppressively bigoted country. 
you would think that there were a hundred Muslims strung up from trees every day across America, the way we hear about anti-Muslim bigotry in our country. Again, all of it way too many. We don't need any of it. But 182, now let's say half of them are reported. Let's say it's 400. We live in a country of 330 million people. And we are at war against this 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 uh, group of people who share this faith, whatever. And there's been terrorist attacks by certain uh, people, by people who uh, abide by this religion. And there's 182 attacks. I mean, I think it's almost pretty good. Too many, too many. Don't give me right way too many. But surprisingly low. On the other hand, where's all this talk about anti-Jewish bigotry? Because that's the real victims of anti-religious bias. Mike Slater Show, Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. Um, I taught high school for a number of years, and I think one of the differences in our generations is the loss of patience. Younger generations seem less willing to put in the kind of time sometimes it takes. You know, uh, when I worked in radio, sorting carts, which no longer exist, or logging in things, these tedious jobs that, that are the gateway to success later, we kind of all want success more rapidly. And her patience and, and stick-to-itiveness really rewarded her. And that's why late in life, when, when uh, she finally achieved success, she also had a keen understanding of its value. Uh, it was something that she actually earned, not something that was given to her. And I think that's one of the things that animated her. And it's a lesson we can all take. Um, you know, that sometimes our greatest successes are built upon not only the shoulders of those who came before us, but our own shoulders by having kept them to the grindstone over a course of a life. Uh, Ethel was a female black reporter in the 50s. She would question Eisenhower and, and other presidents. It's just unheard of to have a female black reporter at that time. Uh, and I love what the author said right there, that it took her, you know, 40 years or whatever to uh, achieve her goal. And it reminds me of someone that uh, a couple weeks ago we had the author uh, or a biographer of Harper Lee. Harper Lee sat down to um, write a book. took her 10 years before she put a manuscript together that she thought was good enough to submit to a publisher. And the publisher read it and said, yeah, it's okay. So she wrote another one. And three major edits later, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Today, we expect success now, especially kids these days. Um, we, want, we want it right now. We want the world to change right now. Everything needs to be instant. But in reality, it's about doing what it takes each and every day to build your experience, build your knowledge, build your skill sets so that maybe one day you could be in the right position for the right time. And I don't mean at the right time. I mean for the right time. I think certain people are fortunate enough to have been born for the right time. Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind, right? He, he was the perfect man for the right time. 
I want to read something here. This is from Teddy Roosevelt. This was 1903, so two years into his presidency, um, and the speech was actually given in San Bernardino, California. Uh, if I may pick up in the middle of the speech here, <clears throat> he says, you do not win in a big fight by any patent device machine. There is not any way by which you can turn your hand and conquer in a, gr- in a time of great trial. You instead have to conquer as your fathers and grandfathers conquered before you. You have got to conquer as strong men have conquered in every struggle of history and draw on whatever fund of courage, of resolution, of hardihood, of iron will that you have at your command. And you can only conquer if you draw on those qualities. Basically, he's saying there's no shortcuts, no shortcuts to success. But here's where I want to pick it up. This is why I bring it up. Uh, Another thing, which you will remember very well from 61 to 65, 1861 to 1865, the Civil War. What my comrades here, uh, the men who went into the Great War and the men who went into the Spanish War or went to the Philippines will remember also that there was a certain proportion of men who joined your ranks who for one reason or another fell by the wayside. And there were different reasons. Some for whom one simply felt an entirely respectful pity. Men who lacked the stamina to be able to stand the hard work. And it was mighty hard work. Among others, the men would come around who wanted to be a hero right off. But did not want to do the other work of the moment. I recollect perfectly in my regiment, a young fellow joined. And on the second day, he came to me and said, Colonel, I come down here to fight for my country and they are treating me like a serf. Making me dig kitchen sinks. His captain, who was a large man from New Mexico, explained to him that he would go right on and dig kitchen sinks. That that was what his business was at the moment. And that if he dug them well, we would see to that hero business later. The man who did well in the army in those days was, as a rule, the man who did not wait to do well until something big occurred, but who did his duty just as his duty came during the long marches, during the weary months of waiting in camp, did his duty just exactly as in battle. He was the man on whom you relied, whom you trusted, whom you wanted to have with you in your troop. He was the man you wanted around. And it's exactly the same with citizenship. I would plead with my countrymen to show not any special brilliancy or special genius, but the ordinary humdrum commonplace qualities, which in the aggregate spell success for the nation and spell success for the individual. Remember that the chance to do the great heroic work may or may not come. If it does not come, then all that there can be to our credit is the faithful performance of everyday duty. That is all that most of us throughout our lives have the chance to do. And it is enough because it is the beginning, because it means most for the nation when done. And if the time for the showing of heroism does come, you may guarantee that those who show it are most likely to be the people who have done their duty in average times as the occasion for doing the duty arose. 
I think that's awesome. Uh, his point is, it's the everyday things. It's doing the everyday, simple, humdrum things well. And then when the moment comes, the person who's going to do the heroic thing is the person who's been doing all the little things the whole time. This is why uh, Admiral McRaven, who's commander of you know, uh, commander of um, U.S. Special Operations, he he oversaw the mission that killed Bin Laden. He gave a commencement address at UT, uh, University of Texas, a couple of years back, and he said, "You want to change the world, right?" Speaking to these graduates, graduates who again, this is just a couple of years ago, so graduates who expect to go into the world and be some big hotshot, make six figures, and change the world right away. He says, "You want to change the world? Start by making your bed." And he said, "Making your bed." will reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. And if you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. You want to change the world? Start by making your bed. Now, we can apply this to our government naturally, right? We want to do the big things right, like win wars or properly vet refugees coming to America. I think these are big things. Keeping America safe, right? That's the first priority of government, right? Keep American citizens safe. I think that's a big thing. You want to do those things right? You got to do the little things right. Welfare um, uh, uh, fraud. And that's, that's, I don't want to say, the, you know what I mean by little things? Does that make sense? You know what I, mean? um, I think education, obviously that's a big thing, but you got to do these things right. Just got word that the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, admitted that accountability does not mean firing people who are involved with uh, their scandals in the VA. Uh, and we've known that, that they haven't fired anyone. Okay, You know what I mean by this, right? Like VA, it's not a little thing, but, right, but we got to do these things. We got to get all these things right before we're ever going to win a war. And we don't have these little things right. But more importantly for you, are you doing the little things right? What little things are you neglecting every day that you can do right? I think of my grandpa. So my grandpa obviously came from this generation, World War II generation. He was always so deliberate. Everything had its place. Everything always had its place. He, like... First of all, shirt always tucked in, always dressed up, always looked sharp, even just lounging around the house, which he almost never did. Um, but I remember he would uh, uh, pour his cereal. with He'd pour it into a, a cup, a measuring cup, and he would do one cup of, I don't know, crackling oat bran and one cup of grape nuts or whatever. <laughs> you know, disgusting cereals. But it, I didn't mean, like everything was just deliberate, perfect, measured, focused, centered, on point, and sharp. He did all the little things right. I think that's what defined that generation. And uh, perhaps in our abundance, we uh, are able to be sloppy. But if we don't do the little things right, we're never going to do the big things right. True for ourselves, true for our country. 1-888-933-93 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike 
Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down in the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, It is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. It's awesome. Uh, That is the commander of U.S. US Special Operations uh, that I mentioned in the last segment. That's part of the commencement address he gave at the University of Texas. If you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Well, but I don't. I don't uh, he he nor I mean that we actually need to sing. Uh, but let's just be grateful. Got to find what's good in the world, find what's good in our country. We talked earlier about moral clarity. We have to get our moral clarity back and not be afraid to have moral clarity. Stop listening to people who say, oh, there's always more nuance. No such thing is good. No such thing is bad. No such thing is evil or righteous. It's all just blah. Everything's in between, whatever. No, some things are right and some things are wrong. We have to find what is right. And not compromise on them. We have to find the helpers. We have to find the heroes and the miracles. I heard the other day that that pipe bomb, um, or a pipe bomb, in the building in San Bernardino didn't go off because a sprinkler went off. 
and diffused the bomb. That is a miracle. Why would the sprinkler go off? Uh, like the smoke from the gun or something? Like, I don't know. Like, would that cause a sprinkler to go off? And what are the, I, I don't know how the system works where if this, let's say the sprinkler goes off in one room, like where the room where the shooting was, but the pipe bomb was somewhere else. Why would the sprinkler go off where the pipe bomb, bomb was? I, like, I, don't, I don't know how that worked, but that's a miracle. That was, tended to go, uh, that was intended to go off when the first responders arrived. That's a miracle. We got to look out for them because they're everywhere. Times are going to get harder, a lot harder. Um, financially. We haven't talked about our economy in a long time, right? Because it's, it's going gangbusters, right? Uh, financially, it's going to get harder. Physically, uh, things are getting harder. Um, there's no doubt about it that the mud will get higher. And the people around us, people around you, your family, your coworkers, are going to feel hopeless. But that's okay. Because it's going to be our job. At that time and until that time, it's our job to keep singing. Pointing out the helpers, pointing out the miracles, pointing out the heroes, pointing out the things to be grateful for, pointing out the things that made America great that could still make America great. That's what I mean by singing. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.